Yesterday afternoon, I went to visit Venerable Maha Gosananda, who's staying at a Cambodian temple that's not too far from here. And some of you may know him or at least know of him. Maha, which means great, and as he's fondly called, Maha's from Cambodia, and he's considered actually the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And I think he's probably most well known for the Dhamma Yatras that he led, the, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through Cambodia, through the countryside, through the villages, and through the refugee camps during the Vietnam War. He's 90 years old now and been a monk for 76 years since he was 14. Maha Gosananda is an incredibly glowing and light, in the sense of energetically light, human being. And to me, he feels like one of the purest, one of the lightest beings that I've ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being of pure heart. About a year and a half ago, I had the great honor of teaching a a three-day retreat with Venerable in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time... uh, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat began, I was taken to his quarters to say hello. And we didn't know each other very well at all and hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. And being such an old man, um, there are a lot of things that he doesn't remember. So I recalled to him when we met that evening, I recalled to him the last time we'd met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing. And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he said, it's a good nose. So yesterday afternoon, I felt like I was going to see my, my Dharma grandfather, who actually calls me mom. And I asked him at one point why he called me mom when he's so much older than I am. And his answer was, he said, we've all been each other's mother at some point, and so you're mom. So yesterday, uh, mom and grandfather, um, we sat and we drank tea and we laughed a little bit and we talked a little bit about his history and we talked about this retreat here and how all of you are so diligently practicing. And mostly we talked the Buddha Dhamma. Being with Venerable Maha Gosananda for me is really a precious gift. It's a precious gift that really opens and 
lightens the mind, lightens the heart. And a gift he so selflessly offers, simply through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift he offers in simply being. When I left yesterday, to my total surprise, the two monks and the one of the nuns that live in the place where Maha is staying came outside and filled the back seat of my car with big bags of Thai rice, with large cans of jasmine tea and bags of sugar to bring back to all of you. They wanted to, want to support you. They're so happy that you're practicing. This evening I'd like to explore with you the first of the paramis, generosity. The paramis being the forces of purity within the heart, the accumulated forces of purity in the mind. These particular qualities that through our practice, grow and deepen. And as they're perfected, are really incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. The perfection of the paramis is the perfection of the qualities of the mind, of the heart, of a Buddha. And as we know, over 2,500 years ago, out of a boundless depth and a profound generosity of heart. It was out of this that Gautama Buddha offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. There are ten paramis that are listed. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, effort, sometimes noted as energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, sometimes spoken of as determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And all of these have been spoken about to some degree during this retreat. So now moving from a very recent story to a very old story, an ancient legend that speaks of all the paramis. And this particular telling is adapted from the tale as it was told by Rafe Martin. It said in the ancient Buddhist legend that Many Mahakalpas, many world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India. He was to pay a visit and offer a public talk, evening of public talks, revealing his Dharma. The villagers were very excited and very deeply honored. And so to show their respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out and to cover with fine cloth 
the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village. In the forest just outside of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and a great moral vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much earlier time, or in a much later time, I should say, was to become our Buddha, the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents were very wealthy Brahmins, and they had died, just died recently. And they left Sumedha with seven generations of accumulated wealth, family property, etc., And it's said that this young man, Sumedha, thought, my family has amassed great wealth. Yet neither of my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them when they left this world. So what's the point of amassing more? One day I will too die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No, I'll leave this sheltered life, he said. I'll become an ascetic. I'll find the way. So he announced his intention to the king, and he gave all of his money to the poor, and he entered the forest into the life of a hermit. It said that he ate wild fruit. It said that he wore clothes made of bark. It said that he let his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced very energetically whether standing, whether sitting, whether lying down. Within a short time, he gained a very profound insight into the nature of things. And it's said that he bore a very bright wisdom, which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully, absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of the Buddha Dipankara's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation. He was roused by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the village. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and he flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement, he said. Why are you working in the heat of the midday sun? Why is this road being leveled? Why is it being covered with cloth? Venerable Sumedha, the workman replied, Don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village. Well, this young hermit's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman on the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill in. He worked with his heart and his mind, filled with light, filled with joy, and he kept repeating over and over to himself, A Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music. 
He heard chanting, and he saw flowers being tossed into the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching the village. Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden glow surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who's attained all wisdom. Here's one who's free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion, one in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. And so Sumedha took off his bark cloth cape and he spread it over the soft, wet ground and he lay down on top of it. He loosened and spread his long, matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk across through the mud, over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties, all the dangers, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot and he looked down at Sumedha and he knew this hermit has made the resolution to be a Buddha. He'll become successful. In many Mahakalpas, many world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, the Buddha Dupankara said, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He'll be a Buddha named Gautama. When he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. He'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. And after great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. With renewed energy and strength, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisattva. As he continued on his way, accompanied by thousands of monks, nuns, and lay followers. The Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of generosity and filled with joy and strength, great strength of purpose, he rose up into the air and returned to the forest retreat where he remained working hard towards his goal. 
generosity. Generosity deepening as a quality of being. Generosity as a practice. We usually think of it as the practice of giving. But in its fullness, it's really both. Offering and receiving. A process that clearly helps to purify, to purify and to transform the contraction of separateness that's engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the quality of generosity offers us the possibility of the purification and transformation of greed, stinginess, covetousness, that feeling of hoarding things, saving things, and the possibility of the purification of clinging. The transformation of the fear and the attachment that's so deeply linked to these energies of holding on. Generosity is a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness. And it's universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we receive. This seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested generosity, We also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. Many, many years ago, I'm weeding, I'm cultivating my garden one summer morning, and my two-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area, and with a big and very bright smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight, with a heart, very heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment of a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet a number of times. And I'd learned that in China, the custom is to give gifts on your birthday. So in the midst of experiencing quite some degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday though I was feeling a bit like uh, what's sometimes called a one-handed giver. After a while, uh, when it actually came time to offer the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. But it truly was a practice for me, a practice of generosity, the process of getting to that point. A friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her 
to sit a three-month retreat here at IMS. And finally they do. They all come together. But one week before she was to begin the retreat, she gives me a call and says that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand, he and I are having an inspired conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm about to get out of his taxi, he takes this small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate. I hesitate momentarily. Not sure how to, or even if I can, really receive this gift. And then my heart simply opens, and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle, surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. There are delicious foods, there's beautiful clothing, and all kinds of blankets close to the child. After she eats and drinks her fill and explores the clothing and the blankets, A voice from the outside of the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice calls, I'm thirsty. Another voice calls, I'm cold. The child is led out of the circle to share, to share the food, to share the drink, to share the warmth of the blankets. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate Generosity. I'm attempting to feed my seven-month-old granddaughter. She picks up a piece of banana and very delightedly stuffs it into my mouth. The incredible outpouring of generosity on every level after the September 11th tragedy. At some point along the way of your life, of your practice, you decide that you want to come and sit a three-month retreat, and all of the conditions come together, and you give it to yourself. You give this gift to yourself and receive this great gift. Another yogi offers you the milk for your tea instead of putting it back into the refrigerator. Or maybe you're moving ever so slowly on a particular day. You don't feel pushed. You don't feel hurried by anyone to speed up. Maybe you receive care packages from home And you share the contents with others here at the retreat. Someone comes and takes the dishes that I'm holding as I stand in the dishwashing line at the back of the dining room. 
Imagine yourself standing outside your house each morning, every morning, holding a bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road, each of them holding a begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or your father or older sister or older brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering every morning of your life, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice of generosity, taking in the joy, the very genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity learned each day. This is from the Buddha. Just as a hundred-peaked, lightning-garlanded, thundering cloud raining on the fertile earth fills the plateaus and gullies, Even so, a person of conviction and learning, wise, having stored up provisions, gives to those in need, delighting in giving. That is her or his thunder, like a raining clouds. That shower of merit, abundant, rains back on the one who gives. The Buddha taught, if you knew what I knew about generosity, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. He said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. The practice of generosity. Most of us in the Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder We don't have the monastic training of the begging bowl easily available to us in this country, which is in part the process of an ongoing cultivation and deepening of gratitude and the understanding of interdependence in relation to the sustenance that's so kindly, so generously offered in support of this way of life. Nor do we engage from the other side, in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance, cultivating the wholesome, open, connected, light heart of generosity. Rather, our culture encourages us to yearn for, to acquire, 
to accumulate and then to fixate upon our accumulations, to cling to our accumulations, material material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, views, all the views that support, all the ideas and opinions that support this whole materialistic culture. And then, in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves, both outwardly and inwardly, through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise, to think and feel and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think that it really takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath or beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment and identification. We don't really have anything inculcated in our culture that teaches us and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulations. And I think that as a culture, there is a deep, quite a profound loss actually in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of compassion. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As we develop and our discerning capacity grows, the heart, the mind, begins to touch to really know more and more deeply the undependability, the unsureness, the ephemerality, the changing nature, the impermanence of all things in this world. What we think is ours today may be taken away tomorrow or may seemingly become someone else's, maybe next week. I mean, even in this retreat, my chair in the meditation hall, my cushion, my seat in the dining room. What in this material world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really really uh, has any hard and fast owners. Everything changes hands, we could say. When we begin to touch this truth in a deep way, it can be a very powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating what we could call our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as the paramis. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine 
It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixing and clinging to our accumulations. Generosity, in turn, is the natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to anyways. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted, a gift that can forever be given. It's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself, we could say. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. Traditionally, in the teachings of the Buddha, there are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what could be called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, maybe still holding on to what we give. It's still mine, which is how I first started my giving to my young Chinese friend, giving her my bracelet, my bracelet. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And afterward, we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly, with both hands. We take what we have and we share it. Because it seems, because it feels appropriate. It's It's a clear giving. And then there's what's sometimes called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give it instinctively. We give it graciously. We think of ourselves, we know ourselves to be really only temporary caretakers of what's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, in a certain sense, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects to remain in the natural flow of life. The heart of generosity. The wisdom of compassionate generosity. There's a metaphor that I like a lot that speaks of this. It's the moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every drop of water on this earth. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just simply shines. The point is to not want to benefit anyone to not make them happy. And there's no audience involved. There's no one to impress, to please, to show. There's no me, no you, no them. It's really a matter of an open gift. Complete generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving. 
There's nothing to be held on to in this knowing, this knowing of the natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And this is from Desmond Tutu, South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, generosity, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And needless to say, we don't always live with the purity, with the completeness of the generosity described in the moon metaphor. And in part, that's why we're here, one of the reasons why we practice. An important thing to remember in our practice, both vipassana and in the cultivation of generosity, which is really the ground of metta, karuna, and mudita, is to remember to be really honest with ourselves. Really, truly honoring and respecting our capacity of heart, our capacity of mind at any given point along the way, and not pretending anything to ourselves, not pretending anything to others by imitating or by acting out of some idealized image that we have of a generous, loving person. It's really important to know and to honor our limitations along the way and come from a very genuine place of heart. About 13 or 14 years ago, my mother uh, hurt her leg. She fell and hurt her leg very badly, cut it. And because of certain conditions, she didn't take care of it, really didn't do anything about it became very infected. We were told that if someone wasn't going to work on a daily basis with cleaning the wound, that she would have to go to the hospital. And my brother and I didn't want that to happen. But there was a few moments of an awkward silence when we heard this. Nobody volunteered to help. Then I did. Not out of a pure generosity of heart, but... There was some there. And so I spent um, about two weeks every day cleaning out this very messy wound in my mother's leg. And I went through a lot of changes in my mind, in my heart. Some days there was a lot of aversion. Some days there was anger. She did this, and now I have to do this. Some days there was a great open-heartedness and connection. 
Some days there was the feeling of, she's the mother. I'm the child. (laughs) I shouldn't be doing this. She should be taking care of me. All kinds of old and healthy present-day states of mind coming up. During the whole process, my mother was extremely thankful. Very, very deeply thankful for what was being done, which was a great help. And I was very grateful for practice, watching this coming and going of various states of mind, and eventually opening into the connection that was being offered and the love that was being offered in the process of taking care of her. Sometimes we might think we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional love or compassion, when in fact we're acting out of fear. Maybe fear of loss or fear of some kind of disapproval or fear of somebody's anger. We might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with someone in a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, perpetuates delusion. It actually strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness. It strengthens disconnection. And it perpetuates the suffering within ourselves and in relationship to others. We may be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy, vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and no self or emptiness that's the quality of generosity quite naturally springs from. It may be that we have a strong inner sense of some kind of need. We might not feel whole. We might not feel what's sometimes called ontologically whole, meaning just not intuitively feeling okayness about being here, a simple okayness about being alive in this life, just because here we are, alive on this planet. And without this, we might have a kind of undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a feeling of an inner lack or a sense of not-enoughness. If we don't feel the strength inside of wholeness, of enoughness, of abundance, we really need to respect this. Otherwise, giving and caring is often done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. And there can also be a misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity, the truth of caring, the truth of compassion. We might give ourselves away or 
lose ourselves in an unhealthy way, in this seeming generous support, which may actually be unskillful giving, unskillful support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. We feel weaker, which can often lead to a lack of awareness of or ignorance of the real needs of others in a given situation or a lack of awareness or ignorance of our own needs. So it's really important to respect and to honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity of heart grows and matures gradually. And also to know and to remember that our limits, our edges, keep changing, keep moving out, keep expanding throughout our practice. Generosity and compassion are so closely allied. In relation to this on the scale of work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. It's really our inalienable right to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel that simple, direct okayness in being here alive on the planet, just simply because we are here. To know this, this is enough. It's just enough. No less, no more. Just like a tree, like a deer, another human being, a butterfly, like grass, like a rainbow. The inclination to feel and to deeply know the wholeness that's naturally inherent on the relative level of interconnectedness and the generosity, the compassion that naturally springs from this is a perfectly natural inclination. The inclination to touch the freedom that's naturally inherent in the understanding in understanding the not-self, the emptiness nature of all things, is a perfectly 
natural inclination. Both of these deeply intuitive natural inclinations, I think, are for many of us the deepest reasons why we're drawn to practice. There's a practice that comes from the Tibetans, a very basic practice for miserly, uh, very extremely stingy people, people who have trouble even giving to themselves. The practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable, maybe a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and you pass it to the other hand. And you just keep passing it back and forth and back and forth from hand to hand until it gets easy. (laughs) And then there are the higher practices. (laughs) If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And giving symbolically develops into letting go, letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And it's even spoken of as relinquishing the secret holdings. In its final stage, the practice is done ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, to all beings everywhere. At one point I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, I used rice, which actually seemed much more appropriate. And this is really what we're doing here in our practice here, without the paraphernalia. We're learning to give and learning to receive, letting go of control and receiving what's given, receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant with the trust that it's just right, with the trust that it's just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be present moment to moment with a clear, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment with gratitude, with appreciation, with humility. We're learning to apply the wise attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body. To apply it to any task that we might be engaged in. To apply it to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the 
Bodhisattva Sumedha, who with such great dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned, we too are learning to receive life fully. Be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path, our path, to the deepest ease of well-being. We, too, are learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is, in its truth, intimately and profoundly connected to the liberation of all beings. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you give to all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help. We give to free others. And we give to help. We give to free ourselves. This is the fullness, this is the seamless circle of generosity. And through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we really begin to know it deeply and live it quite naturally as who we are. I'd like to close with a personal story of 19 or 20 years ago. Along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher whose name was Wallace Black Elk. In those years, he would come once or twice a year to the area in Michigan where I lived. He'd come there to teach us. One particular year, I invited him to come and stay at my house, which was a very small, very old five-room house in the Michigan woods. At that point, two of us, my son and I, one of my sons and I, were living together in that house. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up in the driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. He's quite a big man, six feet, three or four inches tall and very big-boned, and looked even bigger in his tall cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And then it was like one of those cars in the circus when a car pulls up in the center ring and the doors open and people just keep getting out of the car and keep getting out of the car. And you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. As we watched, eight people emerged from this car, (laughs) all of Wallace's helpers and some of his family members. As it turned out, there were 11 people living in our tiny house during the 10-day period of Wallace's staying and teaching. How will we all live in this sleep? How will we all live and sleep in this house? was going through my mind as everybody was kind of rolling out of the car. The space seemed to expand 
People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with Wallace and listen to him as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the ecology center, usually until about 12.30 in the morning. And then it was time for the big, our big dinner because there were no meals taken through the afternoon or the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these whole ten days, I had to let go of many of my preferences, many of my habits, how I used the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and many other preferences. Wallace and one of his family members smoked a lot of cigarettes quite continuously. And there were people, as I mentioned, sleeping all over the house. The day would begin fairly late in the morning because of the late sweat lodge ceremonies that lasted till 12.30 or 12 at night, and then we had dinner at 1 a.m. in the morning. In the afternoons, the house was filled with many people, sometimes 15 or 20 people coming by to listen to Wallace as he offered his teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food We'd come back from the sweats and there were dishes and bowls of food at the door and left on the kitchen counter. Often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. There was always plenty of food and always enough space. The last night, Wallace and his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony a gratitude ceremony for my son and I in our living room. We all sat together in a circle, and each one was asked to offer some words from our heart in relation to the ten days that we'd all spent together. Then they gave my son and I some beautiful gifts, treasures that they had brought with them. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart shares material possessions, there will always be enough. Abundance. If one shares one's space, time, energy, he said, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, There's abundance. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all getting back into the old car, kind of like a movie playing backwards. The two of us walked back into the house and stood there, and we were amazed. The great seeming expanse of our house holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days. When we walked back inside after everyone had left, it seemed that our house had shrunk. And yet, somehow, internally, we both felt expanded. The powerful medicine 
of generosity. In closing the talk this evening, I'm going to be a conduit for a gift of a blessing from Venerable Mahagosananda. Before I left to go visit him yesterday, someone on staff here gave me a sticky note asking me to ask Maha to send a blessing to all of the three-month yogis for their efforts. I stuck the note on an envelope that I had given to him at the beginning of our visit. And every time he caught sight of the envelope that I gave him, he would pick it up and he would read it again. And then he'd put his hands together and offer a blessing to all of you. So during my visit with him, he offered you six or seven blessings. They were all pretty much the same blessing. So passing this along from Venerable Mahagosananda. May all of the yogis practicing at IMS reach all stages of enlightenment. May each one become a fully enlightened one, an arahant. May each one be a fully enlightened Buddha. with great sincerity from Venerable Mahagosananda. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.